nuclear movies. While the atomic bomb has regularly been used as a plot prop in superhero and action movies, usually seen as a threat that is removed from consequences by the lead actor in the final moments, such movies have no weight or importance after the end credits roll. It's just Hollywood fluff and special effects, nothing to be taken seriously. But then you learn about a TV movie from 1983 that was taken seriously, that roused real-world concerns and had real-world impact. And then you talk with a documentary filmmaker who researched exactly what happened around that film to make his own film. And after he reached out to some of his contacts... They alerted me to these documents that gave a full play-by-play of these meetings that happened in the Situation Room, specifically about this TV movie. I I couldn't believe that Reagan and Kissinger and Secretary of Defense and all of these high-level people were in a room deep in the basement of the White House to discuss this TV movie by ABC, the makers of Happy Days and Love Boat. I was able through that to find a direct link between the release of this television movie and a change in rhetoric around nuclear war being survivable. Well... The importance of the media in shaping perceptions and inspiring action could not have been more clearly drawn than the international response to the ABC TV movie The Day After. And when Jeff Daniels, the filmmaker who created the documentary television event that chronicles the jaw-dropping steps that led to and from this groundbreaking film, you get an undeniable hit of the power of media to depict the unimaginable, and motivate people to action to address that uncomfortable radioactive seat that, unfortunately, we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a preview of one of the films in the International Uranium Film Festival television event. It tells the story of the 1983 ABC TV movie of the week, The Day After, a film that changed the course of nuclear discourse. We talk with Jeff Daniels, the director, to learn about how The Day After came about, what it took to get it done, the opposition faced, and its ultimate impact. By combining clips from the original film with interviews and archival footage from when it aired, television event provides not only a sense of the impact of the day after, but its context, and what it has to say about our current renewed governmental love affair with the so-called survivable tactical nuclear bombs, and what they would actually do to people, health, and the environment. We'll also have Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear join us for our newest feature, 
the nuclear hot seat hot story of the week. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than we will ever get from the U.S. Supreme Court. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 19, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in Ukraine, where the Ukrainian government has accused Russia of launching two missiles that were known to have flown over the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, but now there are reports that Russian missiles have also flown near two other nuclear power plants in the country. According to the International Atomic Energy Agency's Director General, Rafael Grossi, the level of safety at Europe's largest nuclear power station, which has been under Russian occupation in Ukraine since late February, is like, quote, a red blinking light. The IAEA is trying, thus far in vain, to gain access for work that is needed on site, including repairs. What has happened at Zaporizhia? There has been bombardment of the nuclear plant that began on Friday, March 4th. A fire broke out at an educational and training building located perilously close to one of the plant's six nuclear reactors. An intense battle with Russian soldiers resulted in them being able to occupy the power plant and take it over. Speaking of the dangers at Zaporizhia and the fact that missiles came so close to it, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, tweeted, If it blows up, it will be ten times larger than Chernobyl. And Chernobyl, it is estimated, released 400 times more radioactive material than was released into the air when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima in Japan. Also, what is likely to impact the war of Russia on Ukraine, though we do not know to what extent, Russian dictator Vladimir Putin will undergo an operation for stomach cancer after May 9th. He will be incapacitated for what he's predicting will be a short time, but medical opinions vary widely on this. During that time, he will transfer power to the head of the Security Council of the Russian Federation, Nikolai Petrushev. Petrushev, who is 70 years old, is considered a key shadow developer in the war strategy in Ukraine. Over to the U.S., where we start out with our newest feature, Linda Pence-Gunter with the nuclear hot seat, Hot story. It's almost comical that President Joe Biden is trying to throw $6 billion of our money at U.S. utilities to keep their nuclear power programs going, given that they actually don't want it. Like the hopeful or maybe hopeless suitor, poor Joe just keeps getting a no. Pacific Gas and Electric Company, owner of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant on the California coast, was the first nuclear plant owner not in line for the taxpayer handout. PG&E intends to close Diablo Canyon in 2025 and says it is committed to the state's nuclear-free future. But California Governor Gavin Newsom is now reconsidering that policy, given the sudden political inconvenience of potential power shortages, holding his hand out for a share of the $6 billion, even while admitting the state might not actually use it to keep Diablo Canyon running. PG&E actually has to comply with the state's energy regulations, which give priority to renewable energy over nuclear power and fossil fuels. Newsom would do well to remember that any money he takes would be more productively invested in renewables and efficiency, 
especially if it's climate change he's worried about. And he should also remember that Diablo Canyon sits on an active earthquake fault line. The $6 billion handout is part of Biden's $1 trillion infrastructure deal that was signed into law in November. But it looks like at least one other nuclear plant owner, Entergy, won't take the handout either. Entergy owns the Palisades nuclear power plant in Michigan due to close this month. Curiously, Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer, appealed last month for federal life support for Palisades. Moody's called it an odd ideological hill on which to take a stand since the plan has so little likelihood of succeeding. Unlikely because Entergy did not order new fuel and has already let workers go. It's simply too late to crank the plant back up again, one of the oldest and most dangerously degraded reactors in the US. The situation mirrors the similarly futile calls for Germany to keep its last two reactors running or even fire up some already closed in order to release the country from its dependence on Russian gas. The utilities there have also said no. The complications and expense of a restart would take years and Germany has instead passed new laws to further stimulate growth in its already booming renewable energy field. It's too bad the Biden administration is kowtowing to the nuclear lobby instead of following Germany's example. Six billion dollars invested in renewable energy and efficiency would get us far greater carbon reductions faster and more cheaply than propping up aging inflexible and water guzzling nuclear plants totally unsuited to a warming world. And it would be better for jobs too. The renewable energy business is the fastest growing employment sector in the US. Furthermore, renewable energy has been shown to stimulate an entire supply chain of supporting industries. Germany revitalized its ports and steel industry via its wind energy program. The United States could do the same. The Biden administration should stop listening to the nuclear energy boosters in Congress, who clearly aren't even listening to the nuclear industry itself. Just say no was an oversimplification, but it would be well for the United States to wean itself from its pointless and expensive nuclear power addiction. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. In a serious blow to the Havasupai people and anyone who loves the Grand Canyon, the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality has approved an aquifer protection permit for the Pinion Plain, formerly the Canyon, uranium mine, which is south of the Grand Canyon. It's within the Red Butte traditional cultural property and above the aquifer that feeds Havasupais and Grand Canyon Springs. The mine has been taking on nearly 10 million gallons of water per year since 2016, and this water contains more than 300% of the federal drinking water standard for uranium and more than 2,800% of the standard for arsenic. Yet the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality said, hey, not a problem here to be continued, especially according to the Sierra Club. On Navajo Nation in Church Rock, United Nuclear Corporation ran a uranium mill that in July of 1979 had a spill that released approximately 94 million gallons of uranium and radioactive waste into Rio Perco, which travels through the area into Gallup and then northeastern Arizona. Navajo Nation members have been trying to get the site cleaned up ever since, with little success. Last week, members of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission visited the Red Water Pond Road community 
only about a mile from the Church Rock spill site, to evaluate United Nuclear Corporation's request to amend its cleanup plans. The unexpected consequence? Members of the NRC got a taste of the problems community members say they cope with every day. Windy conditions caused dust to be blown into the shade house where the field meeting was held. Several residents told commissioners that the dust contained pollutants, including uranium, and it was an example of conditions they have lived with for generations. The possibility of keeping uranium mine waste in the Red Water Pond Road community does not sit well with nearby residents. Talia Boyd, a Gallup resident who still has family in Church Rock, said, We want your waste, your government's waste, off our tribal trust lands. We're not talking about moving it over the hill, across the road. We want it away from our communities. As the debate about sanctioning Russian uranium continues, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust was poised to become the first such fund to trade on U.S. exchanges until last week the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission rejected their application. The SEC cited a failure to meet listing standards, including the nature of the physical uranium market. The fund invests in uranium mines, miners, and related companies. In New Mexico, a scientist was fired after raising questions about safety at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant near Carlsbad. Dr. Charles Oakes is a geochemist who used to work for Sandia National Labs at the WIP site. Dr. Oakes said his job was to look at how much radioactive material from WIP would make its way to the surface. He said he discovered inaccuracies that called into question WIP's long-term safety through what he believed to be data errors. But when he brought it up to his bosses, the Department of Energy, and even the Environmental Protection Agency, Sandia Labs labeled him a problem employee and fired him. Dr. Oakes said, This is a case where not only were they not doing their job, they were claiming that they were doing their job, but falsifying all the evidence that went into the claims that they were doing the job. The time span for safety to be implemented at the WIP site is 10,000 years and beyond. We will have links up to three U.S.-based stories. A multi-billion dollar project to make plutonium cores at Los Alamos National Laboratory may be unsafe, unnecessary, and ill-conceived, but proponents say the mission is a must. To which we add, because jobs, money, terminal short-sightedness. The idea of implementing an immense nuclear program at Los Alamos has sparked outrage among citizens, nuclear watchdogs, scientists, and arms control specialists, all of whom say the pit production mission is neither safe nor necessary, and producing them at Los Alamos would force the lab into a role it isn't equipped for. Its plutonium facilities are too small, too old, and lack important safety features. The eventual closing of the Great Lakes region's 38 nuclear facilities has drawn the attention of a U.S.-Canada Science Advisory Board that urges more consistent rules between the companies for dismantling them. Eight of the reactors in the Great Lakes Basin are currently shut down, and seven more are scheduled to close by 2025. We'll have a link to that. And did you know that there is a nuclear site in Huntington, West Virginia? It's the former Huntington Pilot Plant, also known as the Reduction Pilot Plant, and that's where nuclear materials were both produced and processed for atomic weapons facilities in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Paducah, Kentucky, and Piketon, Ohio. 
Check out the link. This one's really fascinating. Over to Japan, where that country's government and Tokyo Electric Power Company are acting as if the release of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean next year is a done deal, and they're just ironing out the details while paying absolutely no attention to international protests. Protests first. A panel of multidisciplinary scientists hired by the Intergovernmental Pacific Islands Forum has not found conclusive evidence that the discharge of over 1 million tons of nuclear wastewater from Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean would be entirely safe, and one marine biologist fears contamination could affect the food system. Panel scientist Robert Richmond, director of the University of Hawaii Kawilo Marine Laboratory, said that in previous discussions over the safety of Japan's plans, it emphasized the chemistry of the discharge, but not how it could interact with marine life. Richmond states that he has been particularly concerned about the potential for radioactive tritium, a key compound of concern in the water, being absorbed into the food system because the radioactive isotope can bind to phytoplankton, and through phytoplankton could find its way into the greater food system as the microscopic plants are consumed by mollusks and small fish, which are later consumed by other fish and larger fish and eventually humans. Also voicing concern are the governments of China and South Korea, as well as local fishermen who have been widely opposed to the release. But the spin doctors are making themselves dizzy with articles not only promoting the release, but assuming it is a done deal and all that's left now are the details. An International Atomic Energy Agency team expects only a limited impact on humans following the planned release into the sea, they never say Pacific Ocean, into the Pacific Ocean of treated radioactive water from Tokyo Electric Power Company and the wreckage of the Fukushima Daiichi triple, triple reactor meltdown. IAEA says that the treated water is far below the Japanese regulatory limits as to how much radiation can be in the water. Question then comes, who sets those limits? What is it based on? Where is the science? And would you drink the resulting water? And they never refer to if TEPCO actually releases the water, but when it will do so. Remember that the IAEA has as part of its charter that it promotes the use of nuclear. That explains a lot. But there are problems with the plan for the facilities to discharge the contaminated water, and it has not yet been approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Authority, which is Japan's equivalent of the NRC. The local government has not yet given its approval for the start of construction of an undersea tunnel to discharge the treated water, None of that has stopped TEPCO from telling the press, we are preparing for the construction work and we will move ahead to the extent that there are no problems. In France, 28 of France's 56 nuclear reactors were shut down due to either routine maintenance or defects as of April 28th. Of particular concern are five reactors that were shut down after cracking caused by corrosion was identified in pipework last year, and six more plants will be shut down specifically for testing for this exact same problem. These problems have raised, France's problems have raised questions about the UK's big bets on nuclear. French developed projects in Finland, France, and the UK have been plagued by delays and cost overruns, and in Taishan, China, it's still closed for nine months and counting for an undisclosed problem. Now, in Finland, 
the developer company of the Rosatomskaya nuclear power plant confirms it will now not be built because of significant delays and the inability of Rosatom to deliver the project. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. According to a new report by Allied Market Research, the global market for nuclear missiles and bombs should surpass 126 billion U.S. dollars within 10 years, up nearly 73% from 2020 levels. Oh boy, market expansion. What fun. The value of the market would jump 72.6% from the 2020 estimate of $73 billion, which was when COVID-19 delays and reallocation of funds to support the health crisis severely affected the defense sector. How dare it! While North America dominated more than half the global market in 2020, the report predicted that the fastest growth would come from the Asia-Pacific region on initiatives by India, Pakistan, and China to bolster their nuclear arsenals. However, the firm said, international treaties and consortiums discourage nuclear testing. This hampers the market growth. Market growth? Merchants of death? Murder weapons? Weapons of mass destruction? And you're worried about market share? We can't have any of that non-proliferation going on. I mean, jobs, money, the ability to buy $4.1 million cars. But even though at the start of this year, Britain, China, France, Russia, and the United States issued a joint statement saying there could be no winners in a nuclear war and it must be avoided, Clearly, there are winners, and that's the manufacturers of all the materials that are in the nuclear fuel chain leading to weapons and the ultimate annihilation that they pose. And that's why those who look upon nuclear in terms of market share and profit motive, as opposed to the blood on your hands, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, there is never a week without nuclear news. And most of what you see on mainstream media is directed by the multi-million dollar funded public relations campaigns of the nuclear industry. Media outlets and reporters are conditioned to look for information provided by vested interests for its stories, often not even changing wording from the nukesters' press releases. Those who oppose nuclear barely merit a mention, and usually that's a diminished voice in a buried paragraph near the end of an article after the pro-nuclear talking points have taken up the bulk of what's there for you to read. Yet we know the stories. We are the stories from our perspective, the different perspective, and we struggle to make our voices heard. And that is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We don't look away. We don't flinch. We continue on the nuclear story every week, looking for the latest information, angles that reveal progressively more details on nuclear dangers, and if you're looking for the history of how we painted ourselves into this nuclear corner, Nuclear Hot Seat is continuing to upload our archive of 11 years 
more than 560 episodes, to our new website. That takes us back to 2011. We are the world's longest-running program exclusively dedicated to nuclear matters, but we cannot continue to do it without your support. So to help us out, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button. You can send a one-time donation or set up a recurring donation of as little as $5 a month, the same as a cup of coffee. So buy us that metaphoric cup of coffee to support the show. And know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here is this week's featured interview. When is a film more than just a film? When it becomes an international sensation and changes the course of nuclear discussion by world leaders. Many of the listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat may not have even been alive in 1983 when the ABC TV movie The Day After aired. The movie depicted the lives of normal people in Lawrence, Kansas, going about what they were doing, and then what happens when a nuclear bomb targets the missile silos that are sunk in that area. The first half of the film plays like a normal film would, but from the moment the bomb explodes, there are no commercials between then and the end. That in itself was extraordinary, but more so was the impact of that film on the public's thinking. It genuinely changed the course of nuclear discourse at the international level and contributed to a dialing back of nuclear tensions between the U.S. and Russia. But how to make a modern audience care about a film that's almost 40 years old? That's where television event comes in. It's a film about the film the day after. But it's more than a making-of documentary such as would be found on a DVD. It's a chronicle of the politics creative struggles, and fierce determination of the original filmmakers to make what they envisioned. And in the process, and in the process of telling that story, television event gives us glimpses of the original that still retain their ability to terrify and horrify with their accuracy. Television event is part of the International Uranium Film Festival and has been nominated for Best Feature Documentary. It will be available online May 19 to 29 of this year, but in advance of that viewing, I spoke with the film's director, Jeff Daniels, on Thursday, April 28, 2022. Jeff Daniels, thanks so much for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Let's get into the making of the film because it originally came out in 2020 and it's a making of documentary, which is usually done for films that are about to break. It wasn't made as, an, as a making of documentary, which is usually something that comes with the DVD, you know, as an extra version of it. In spending years trying to raise funding for these independent documentaries, it was the first question they asked, is this a making of documentary or is it something that stands on its own. So I did have to convince them, yeah, no, this isn't some extra feature for a DVD. This is truly something that has something to say about the political and social experience that followed this television movie that almost seems impossible to make, something that made by the ABC network, a network that's usually responsible for shows like The Love Boat and Happy Days, and then they throw a nuclear war on the American public. So I made a film that looked at the implications of that. There are a lot of people alive today who have never even heard of the film The Day After. I had a very direct experience of it. I was actually in Lawrence, Kansas, where it is set, 
watching it because I had a play in production there. And that's just where I happened to be. Wow. But many people do not know what this was. So tell us briefly what the day after was. The people who were involved in making this television movie, a lot of creatives found an opportunity to make a movie that spoke to their values at that time. This was made in 1982 and 83. This was the time when you had these incredible protests, anti-nuclear protests. So I think the intention of it was to make a statement, but I think ABC's intention was to make something that would win the ratings war with the other networks. So I think that's where I found this interesting story of different intentions that came together and ended up creating something with great impact. And the story itself in the day after set in this farming community that just happened to have missile silos all surrounding it, which it still does, Mm. is what happens when normal life is interrupted by a nuclear war? And what does that do to people who we've already come to care about in the first half of the movie before the bomb drops so that we are invested not only in them, but in what happens to them and the information beyond? When did you first get the idea to make this film? I saw the day after when it came out. I was five years old. I didn't see the entire TV movie. It would have absolutely ruined me. But as you pointed out, you're introduced during the first half of the film, which I was allowed to see, to all these different characters living in Lawrence, Kansas, and from all different walks of life. And I got the picture, even though I was put to bed before that iconic bombing sequence. All these people are about to die a slow, horrible death. The lucky ones are instantly vaporized. It was clear to me as a five-year-old that this was about to happen. Later in life as a filmmaker, you're always asking yourself, how do you make an impact in some way? How does storytelling allow people to think about broader global issues that seem indigestible or that are hard to confront? And I was reminded that all forms of art, regardless of what medium, They're meant to imagine the unimaginable and make these global issues personal. And I was very much attracted to that and wanted to see how this film got made so that it could tell that story. When did you start on the work and how did you begin it? I think I read somewhere about the 20 or the 25th anniversary of the day after's screening and everything came back to me piling into my grandparents' basement in Flushing, Queens to watch the day after with 40 other members of my family talking about it at school the next day. I remember the blanket advertising that was going on. You really, you truly couldn't escape the advertising of this television movie. And when I read about the film on the 25th anniversary, I just thought, how is it possible for a network that makes family-friendly content that was just about to be bought out by the Disney Corporation how is it that a corporate, you know, that a broadcaster like that would make something so confrontational? And when I saw the people involved and the different intentions that they had, either to raise the ratings of the network or on the other side to try and unseat President Reagan during this time when he was saber rattling, using nuclear war as a political tool, I just thought that here was a very interesting and perhaps funny way of looking at a rather frightening period in our history that looks at a threat that still exists today and that we would rather ignore. So I thought now's the time to reflect on this moment and hopefully have another reminder of just how devastating nuclear war is, the effects of nuclear war, 
and try and get people thinking about something that they would rather not. The movie that you created, television event, does have a lot of the footage from the film itself. How easy or difficult was it for you to gain the rights to excerpt material directly from the film? It's an interesting process trying to make these types of films that look at the film in that manner. And I I was surprised to see that The Day After was actually freely available as it still is on YouTube. And I was also interested in finding copies of the rough cut of the film that were saved by archivists who are all over the internet and were able to kind of piece together the original four hour version that was cut down to I think about two and a half hours so that I can incorporate that as well into my film. And once I realized that I had access to all of this material, I tried to editorialize as best as I could how this film came together which was one way of trying to use a lot of this material. This is something that a lot of documentary filmmakers need to deal with, uh, gaining either proper permission or trying to gain access to these films so that we're able to speak and editorialize on the significance of these pieces of media. What, if any, obstructions did you face as you went after the raw footage, the finished footage, and beyond that, the various interviews that you had? Trying to get access to behind the scenes material was difficult because it was a closed set and only people who were working on the production snuck photos of behind the scenes of what they were doing. So I tried to reach out to as many crew members as I possibly could because a lot of them believed in what they were doing and were in many instances, it was the first time that they were working on a production that really spoke to their values and something that they felt they wanted to work on at that time. So they were more than happy to share their material with me and to connect me with others who snuck in members of the city of Lawrence, Kansas, who kind of uh, knew the person who was the guard at the set and were able to sneak in and film some material or get some shots, some incredible pieces of citizen journalism at the time as well, that people who were able to get behind the scenes and they shared that material with me and Also, it's amazing how much foreign governments at that time in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s were filming internationally. They were using government funding to create stories about what was happening in the world. And there was a TV journalism report here in Australia. It was called a Four Corners Report, it's the name of the show, where they not only filmed behind the scenes, but they actually filmed a family watching the day after live when it was broadcast on television. And that's how I opened my film. So for these archive-based documentaries, you need to have a lot of conversations with people and nerds like me who just love to save a lot of this material and archive it in ways so that people can remember. And so my job is to try and create a story that's entertaining enough and compelling so that people can understand the significance of saving this material for our posterity so that we can remember what we went through then and what we're going through still today. One of the things that really impressed me about the film was how three-dimensional the picture was of what was going on. Because yes, we were in a geopolitical time where nuclear was terrifying as it had been terrifying for so long. I grew up during the 50s, so Mm. I remember duck and cover and all the rest of it. And it was a daily worry, a daily existential concern that suddenly there was going to be a bomb and we were all going to be vaporized. And 
here was a film the day after that actually before CGI, before all the special effects we can do digitally now, created a very convincing picture of what that fireball would do when it swept through the Mm. families. There's a family gathered around a truck where we see the filmmakers actually putting the children and the parents in position. And then later we see the actual effect that has happened that the fireball rolls through when they're trying to get in the truck. That was profound. You had the people from Lawrence, Kansas talking about their various experiences. You had the special effects guys and the people on set talking. And you also got to Nicholas Meyer, who was the director and I think was a prime moving force because every time the network tried to make him step back from what he was doing, which you point out so well, so clearly in television event, he just said no. He refused. And he took steps to enforce that. And he's very well known for being obstreperous within the entertainment industry. But he certainly put it to best effort and best use when he was doing this film. So What did it take for you to get through to him and how agreeable was he to being interviewed at the depth and with the specificity with which you conducted it? I did find it generally easy to connect with most people for this film because it was a moment in their lives where they were able to create a piece of art that truly spoke to their principles and they weren't doing it for the money, it it, it seems. The people who were the network executives, obviously, it was their business to try and create something that would grab as many eyeballs as possible. And I was uh, able to find people there who who were able to state that quite clearly. You know, they weren't trying to save the world. But people like Nicholas Meyer, I think they took this job, which they considered a step down. Nicholas Meyer had just made Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which is still an iconic film and was a huge blockbuster hit at that time. And then he was asked to make a television movie, which was a considerable step down. But he figured this is really something that speaks to the reason that I create art. I might as well lean into this. I found it hilarious when he was explaining how there are a lot of restrictions that are put on you when you're making something for television. And he stood up for the writer and the writer's original intentions and the intentions of what the producer was trying to do. And basically refused at all ends for any attempt to censor or curtail what his job was, which was to film each of these scenes and and then hopefully fight to, to get them all into the final film. So at each end, I found people who were more than willing to share their time and their experiences in making this film because it seemed like it was a rare opportunity. And they all clearly understood the significance of putting something like this on television at a time in 1983 where more people were watching network television than at any other time before or since. And that's why you ended up having 100 million people in the US alone watching this TV movie at the same time, something that I really don't think can be repeated. I felt all of this was worth documenting and I was glad to see that each person, Ted Koppel, even um, they, they were all willing to share their experiences and and help out in any way to tell the story of making this film. What did you learn or what did you experience that surprised you the most in the process of putting the film together? 
while I was making the film, there was a Freedom of Information Act request to release documents around the White House's response to the TV movie. And so I was amazed to find it by working with other researchers and academic consultants on the film to get all my facts straight, they alerted me to these documents that gave a full play-by-play of these meetings that happened in the Situation Room, specifically about this TV movie. I, I couldn't believe that Reagan and Kissinger and Secretary of Defense and all of these high-level people were in a room deep in the basement of the White House to discuss this TV movie by ABC, the makers of Happy Days and Love Boat. I couldn't believe it. Um, So um, I I was able through that to find a direct link between the release of this television movie and a change in rhetoric around nuclear war being survivable. I think that this was something that the Reagan administration was trying to push, or some members of that administration were trying to push at the time as a way of deterring the Soviets from using their weapons because uh, they were trying to say that America is strong and if you're gonna bomb us, we can take it because nuclear war is survivable. Now that a TV movie was coming out on a major network showing what surviving a nuclear war would actually look like, I think Reagan, an actor who understood the power of of the media and, and of storytelling, he couldn't get away with saying that. His administration couldn't get away with saying that nuclear wars survivable or that these wars can be won. And so I think it's significant that a few months after the release of the day after, about a month after, during his State of the Union address, he famously says a nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought. A huge change in his rhetoric around the war. And members of the administration were able to admit on my film as well that this TV movie really did lead to a culture change that led to the most significant reduction in nuclear weapons in the history of nuclear weapons. So, you know, I hope that this in a way reminds people of the power and the influence really that art can have over people who are in positions of power to change the way that they talk, act, and think about nuclear weapons in this case, and that that can actually lead to real change. What has been the distribution of the film so far? It's unfortunate that COVID has hobbled the ability for many independent filmmakers and artists in general to display their art and to provide this shared experience for the viewers of that art to talk about it in the same room and talk about it amongst each other. That opportunity has kind of been uh, hobbled a bit because of uh, COVID. The film was due to have its premiere at opening weekend at the Tribeca Film Festival in March of 2020. So unfortunate they had to cancel about a week before But since then, because some film festivals have committed to in-theater screenings and trying to provide safe environments for that, it's only now this year and and, and last year that the film has started to screen in outdoor cinemas and now in indoor cinemas, which is great. I'm so proud that it will be screening in Rio at the Uranium International Film Festival. You know, these opportunities are very necessary for people to be in the same room with a whole bunch of people, just like many families were when the day after came out, so that they can watch it and discuss it together and have this shared experience so that they feel that they are not alone in this and um, that it's also important to weigh in your emotional understanding of these vast global issues with your political and uh, military strategic understanding of, of what nuclear weapons are. And yeah, I'm also proud to say that the film will be available internationally online through any 
every online means to, to see the film this July. Has there been any attempt to put together a double bill of not just television event, your film, but also the day after and somehow conjoin them so that we get the full experience and the full understanding of what the experience meant? I think that would be great to do. It's uh, something that would need to be arranged by people who can wrangle how all of that would happen. I mean, as I mentioned, the day after is freely available on the internet. There is also a great high-resolution Blu-ray DVD version that was released about two years ago, if you'd like that nice uh, version of it. And I, I, it contains the TV version and the theatrical version, the film screened internationally in theaters. It was billed as the TV movie every American has seen. I think it would be great to screen them together and have that kind of conversation. Um, it would take some wrangling for someone who knows how to get these things going, but I think that would be wonderful. Anything that gets the message out there so people are able to talk about an issue they'd rather ignore is a good thing. This is probably a bad week to bring up the N-word, Netflix, which would otherwise, except for its $40 billion devaluation in the last 10 days, would have been the proper target for this kind of a double bill to be there. But considering how impactful that film was first time around, and that we now have the double barrel of not only the film, but your documentary. Has there been any shift in interest in it, given the saber rattling, the bringing back of the Cold War nuclear threats, and the very real threat that Russia might decide to drop a nuke on Ukraine or someplace else, Mm. just to make the point that, well, we didn't lose the war, we just destroyed everything? I found it quite interesting to see the interest that this film has had over the past two years, because we've been through a number of different major global events over these past two years. And when I was making this film, I, while I certainly had nuclear war in mind, I wanted to stay in 1983 in making this film so that it would in some way speak to something that was going on in the present, whatever that present would be. If you try and say that this connects with what we're going through right now, it would immediately be dated. So I felt like it had a a bit of an evergreen feel by staying in 1983 so that people could then make their own connections with the present when they watch it. For me, it was the climate crisis and seeing my child's experience of the climate crisis being very similar to the kind of angst, the nuclear angst I had when I was their age in the 80s. I try to keep that in mind, the children's response to the climate crisis and how they were protesting quite effectively to get adults to take some responsibility for their actions. That was something that was very important for me and that I was trying to tie in with the film. And then when it came out, people said, oh, this is very much like the pandemic. We're all, we're all hunkered down and afraid of this unknown element that can affect us. And we need to come together as a family and save all of our toilet paper. And that was the kind of connection people made at that time. And now, very unfortunately, it has a very real connection to this renewed threat of nuclear war, similar, if not even worse than it was back in the early 80s. It's quite frightening. I really never intended this to have an an immediate link with the nuclear threat, but it seems that people are really latching on to that. And as a result, I've been accepted to a number of film festivals that have this type of focus and feel that it's important to get that message out in any way possible. 
is frighteningly relevant at all times when you make these films that honor the work that artists do to try and make us lean into subjects that we would rather not imagine or confront. Among the unimaginable is the actual physical impact of a nuclear bomb on people, which is shown so well in the original film The Day After, and also that you managed to excerpt with great effectiveness throughout television event. Do you believe that if people understood more exactly what a nuclear bomb would do? Because recently there has been so much talk and so much push that we need more bombs, we need more plutonium pits, There are survivable, small, tactical nuclear weapons, put all of that in quotes. Do you think if people understood more clearly exactly what a nuclear bomb would do, not just immediately, but in the long term, do you think that we might step back from this brink in some kind of an ultimate way? I absolutely do. I think that people who make these bombs in a way where it can be used or used as some leverage to deter another country from using their own nuclear weapons or from their own aggression in in some way, I feel that it becomes psychotic, really, when you understand the effects that these weapons have on the short term and in the long term. That's why I feel that it is a vital service that artists provide people to try and understand the effects of these bombs on a personal level to try and allow people to imagine themselves in that situation so that they would not stomach the saber rattling that some politicians may use or the threats that people in other countries and in our own country, wherever that is, where they may use that as an option, a military option, is truly psychotic and suicidal in many ways. To say that, well, this only has a a minimum amount of radiation in a certain area I mean, when you see what that does to not just military targets, but the civilian population around and the short and long-term effects of that, we need to be reminded of that. We need to empathize with the people who are affected by that. There's a reason that we haven't used these bombs since the 1940s. We need to be reminded of this, it seems, generation after generation. So that's why I'm trying to honor these people who are trying to create an imagining of this unimaginable situation on a medium that was watched by more people than ever before or since. It was an incredible opportunity to do that. And I'd hope that my documentary can have the reach to remind people of what happens when you try and create an imagining of this and how you can galvanize people who feel it's okay to think on an emotional level about this and to internalize what the effects of that may be so that we're able to reconsider what we're actually doing when we use nuclear weapons as a military option to try and either prevent or to use against another country. It's a horrible, horrible thing to to consider. Well, you've certainly provided a vital service with your film because you have presented certainly the awareness of this by reminding us of this earlier film and showing just some of the effects that were in there. And I hope that through the International Uranium Film Festival and your other efforts and people reaching out to you, you will be able to get your film out and hopefully inspire others to look at the full film. And from there, with their emotions fully engaged, be motivated 
to take action to get rid of them forever. We certainly have the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. We have the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. It's possible what needs to be galvanized is the will. And I think you have just provided us with a tool for certainly making more people aware and hopefully moving them to action. If people wish to follow the future of your film in the Uranium Film Festival and beyond, what is your website? They can go to televisionevents.com. That links straight to my website and will give you all the latest information on where you can view the film, either in theaters or online. And yeah, this July, early July, it'll be available worldwide online. And, and I welcome you all to view it. And there are links to social media so that you can continue the discussion on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And yeah, let's hope that this conversation can continue so that we don't stomach the use of nuclear weapons and hopefully try and continue our efforts to abolish these weapons from even being made. Lock and crossed fingers are a terrible defense against nuclear war, but I think you've given us another piece of the arsenal. Jeff Daniels, again, congratulations on the film television event. And thanks for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much, Libby. That was documentary filmmaker Jeff Daniels, whose film television event will be available online May 19 to 29 as part of the International Uranium Film Festival. The film is nominated for Best Documentary Feature Award and is believed to have a good chance to win. You can learn more about it at televisionevent.com and uraniumfilmfestival.org. Meanwhile, if you want to view the original film the day after, it's available on YouTube. And for your convenience, we'll have a link to it up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 567. Activists, Activists shout out, shout out, shout out. More film news. The Netflix series on Three Mile Island is now available for viewing. This four-part series will only be up for one month, so plan on taking a look at it ASAP. Early word from friends who've already watched the first two episodes say that it's really good and that they don't flinch away from the hard details. If you haven't seen it, there is a terrific four-page article in People magazine on Melissa Bumstead and the fight to get the Santa Susana Field Laboratory cleaned up. There's hope that this national attention will help influence the California EPA to enforce the comprehensive cleanup agreements that it has already made. The documentary about this battle for cleanup in the dark of the valley is now streaming on Peacock TV, and we'll put a link up to that as well on Nuclear Hot Seat. And there is a provocative think piece written by Steve Leeper of the Peace Institute on war culture versus peace culture. He makes some important points in it and, in essence, calls for a general strike of conscience. You make up your own mind. We will post a link to it up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 567. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, 
NEARS.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, Reuters.com, Parents Against the Santa Susana Field Lab, People Magazine, PeaceInstitute.org, DemocracyNow.org, RFERL.org, NationalWorld.com, UKRANews.com, KOB.com, SierraClub.org, Mining.com, Daily-Times.com, SearchlightNM.org, ToledoBlade.com, RAFWV.com, Tokyo-NP.co.jp, CivilBeat.org, JapanTimes.co.jp, IAEA.org, Asahi.com, News.sky.com, Dr. Paul Dorfman on Twitter, Andre Osarovsky on Twitter, Venovoima.fi, Politico.eu, and the captured and compromised by the industry, they are supposed to be regulating Nuclear Regulatory Commission. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, we make it so easy. Go to the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, and put in your first name and your email address. You'll get one email a week with the link to that week's show and a short description of some of the material that is in it. People on the ground in a community always have the best sense of what the nuclear stories are around you. So if you know of a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send it in an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to our brand new website, nuclearhotseat.com, and look for that now modest-sized red button. Click on it, follow the prompts, and know that anything you can do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. You can quote me, Cite me. You can do the same for my guests. However, you must credit Nuclear Hot Seat and my guests' organizations. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you, nuclear war cannot be won and should never be fought. A quote from President Ronald Reagan. There you go. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear Hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.